Patrick and I are on our way to see a DC United game, but as far as fans go, we're not exactly hardcore. Hey Siri, who is DC United playing tonight? The United play the Red Bulls today at 8 p.m. We're also not really there to see a DC United game. Why are we here, Ruth? I mean, I kind of want to see the game, but I want to eat a pupusa. DC United has a brand new stadium, Audi Field in Southwest DC. It's Ruth's first time there. And following in the footsteps of other new stadiums, they have a ton of updated food options. We're way past the standard popcorn, cotton candy, and pretzels. And once we get inside, we really get to see what all the options are. We're coming up on, on some food stands. Butterfly, they seem to be selling elote. It's a big dog. I wonder if they, they still have smokes. i got to eat one. But then we find what we're here for. <laughs> I'm here for one thing and one thing only. What are you here for? A pupusa. Two of them because they're sold in pairs. <laughs> Pupusas. We hop in line and find DC United fans of all backgrounds waiting too. I mean, I think they were smart to know that there are a lot of like Hispanic population in DC. Like, they want their food. I think people are tired of like going to the ballpark and getting like hot dogs or a burger. I mean, I don't even like hot dogs. I didn't want anything that was just kind of like regular I could get anywhere else. We consider the menu. Cheese pupusas, beans and cheese, or pork and cheese. Um, they do not take the season ticket member discount. Then we spot it, a quesadilla at a pupuseria. What's up with that? Well, there aren't very many standalone pupuserias in DC, even though the dish is obviously beloved. That doesn't really seem fair to me. For all the love pupusas get, why do they have to share a menu with Mexican dishes? This is Dish City from WAMU. I'm Patrick Fort. And I'm Ruth Tam. We tell stories of city change through DC's iconic foods. The pupusa is the most recognizable food from El Salvador. So why do pupusas have to share a menu with quesadillas, and tacos, and burritos? I think it was mainly for the, you know, the gringos. On this episode of Dish City, pupusas and Salvamex restaurants. How does an immigrant cuisine distinguish itself in D.C.? Pupusas have been sold at D.C. United Games for as long as the team has existed. It seems like a nice way to acknowledge the team's fans from El Salvador, which is the home of the pupusa, and also Raul Diaz Arce, the D.C. United player who scored the team's first ever goal back in 1996. When we pick up our pupusas at Audi Field, we're about 100 feet away from a fan group called La Barra Brava, which is modeled after similar fan groups in South America. Well, they have crudito and salsa. We got, got forks up here too. We dig in. Each warm ball of masa is stuffed with pork and cheese or beans and cheese before they get flattened and griddled. They get served with salsa and cortito, a tart cabbage slaw. So on the scale of like under to overwhelmed, um, how do you feel? Considering the bar for stadium food is a lot lower. It needs like a pupusa is like super multi-dimensional. There's like the gooey, cheesy interior, like the crisp, crusty, hot exterior. But yeah, this pupusa doesn't really have as many of those things, but it's still like an impress that it's here.
I wasn't surprised to see a quesadilla on the menu at this pupusa stand. After all, there are a lot of Salvadoran Mexican or Salvamex restaurants in D.C., but no one was getting a quesadilla. Why couldn't this just be a pupusa stand? Salvadorans are D.C.'s biggest immigrant population. There are 20,000 Salvadorans living in the district and an additional 200,000 living in the surrounding suburbs. Surely pupusas and Salvadoran food alone could support ample business. The Salvadoran population has been established here for a long time. Way back in the, in the 1960s and 70s, there were folks who were already here in Washington, D.C., making home. There were already folks who were either employed by the embassies. These would be like nannies, uh, home workers, and these are, yeah, just folks who were like, we would consider them the pioneers of the community. This is Jose Centeno Melendez. He studies Latino and American identity, and he's working on a project documenting the history of D.C.'s Salvadoran community. I was born in New York. Uh, my familial heritage uh, goes back to El Salvador. From 1979 into the early 90s, El Salvador went through a brutal civil war. The U.S. supported the Salvadoran government, who used death squads to target left-wing groups fighting for labor rights. Thousands of people died, and about 20% of all Salvadorans were displaced. D.C.'s small Salvadoran community attracted lots of people who were leaving for the U.S. Many settled in Adams Morgan, Mount Pleasant, and Columbia Heights. Jose split his childhood between El Salvador and the Washington region, specifically Hyattsville in Maryland's Prince George's County. Back in El Salvador, he grew up eating his grandmother's home-cooked Salvadoran food, fried fish, tamales, and he has a very distinct memory of eating pupusas. In El Salvador, when typically when you eat a pupusa over there, Usually there will be women who are like preparing the pupusas outside in like a, a griddle type of situation. And we'd sit outside and they'd serve you like the pupusas in like a plastic plate with like a little plastic uh, uh, sheet of paper over it. And you'd eat. But pupusas in the D.C. area? Totally different experience for Jose. I remember this one time that we went to one restaurant called El Gavilan in Silver Spring. And there was live music there, you know, like dim lights or like blue, red, like to create some sort of ambiance. Uh, and I noticed that my mom and my pops were eating what I know today as fajitas and drinking margaritas. And like I had never seen fajitas before, I don't think. Mexican food is so integral to eating in America that it's kind of hard to imagine it as new, but that's exactly what it felt like to Jose. And let's talk about the fajita craze. It wasn't just that restaurant Jose's family went to. It seemed like there was a time in the 90s where every national chain was advertising a sizzling fajita griddle. Now at McDonald's, a new taste. Chicken fajitas, only 99 cents each. Definitely never seen like the foodstuffs like margaritas or like the chips and salsa to me were also a foreign concept. Me and my brother and my sister were eating pupusas. And so that to me was like a moment of like, what is going on? The pupusas were familiar, sure, but eating them at a restaurant, this Salvamex place, it was so strange. I'm eating a pupusa inside of this, like, air-conditioned restaurant. And that just, I don't know, I just, like, it just really caught me off guard. And I've, it led me to ask a lot of questions about, like, well, what is this place? What does it mean? 
This vivid memory in an air-conditioned restaurant was Jose's first experience with culture shock. I do remember like in the 90s, like fajitas being like this really like, wow, people were so wowed at the sizzling, you know, plate and like, you know. Ana Reyes is the general manager of El Tamarindo in Adams Morgan, one of the first Salvamex restaurants in D.C. Her father immigrated from El Salvador in the 1980s. For a number of Salvadorans who recently settled in the D.C. area, working in restaurants serving Mexican food was a really popular way to make a living. Anna's father got his start at a Mexican restaurant on the waterfront as a busboy. Then he became a dishwasher and, later, a cook. When he and Anna's mother opened Alta Mirindo in 1982, it was one of the first of its kind. I think maybe there were like two restaurants that served Salvadoran food. And in the early days of El Tamarindo, fajitas were on the menu. Even as a kid, Anna knew it was strategic. We were very aware of like the business aspect and like the menu. We could probably answer any question on the menu at like the age of like eight. In addition to fajitas, there were tacos, burritos, margaritas. Serving Salvadoran and Mexican food on the same menu meant that Altamarindo could cater to different diners' tastes at the same time. It made sense for business. Their desire to open up a restaurant wasn't because that's, that they've been super passionate about uh, being restaurateurs. No, they were trying to give their families a better life, and they've, they've done that. Because of all the groundwork laid by people like Anna and her parents, Salvamex restaurants became increasingly popular, and not only in D.C., I love Salvamex restaurants so much uh, because, I mean, that's really what I grew up eating. Natalie Escobar is a Washingtonian who grew up in San Francisco. I'm Salvadoran, but I didn't just grow up eating Salvadoran food. Like, I grew up in a city that had a lot of Mexican food. I, like, I just grew up eating so many different kinds of foods. For Natalie, eating different cuisines together was natural. It was the product of living in such a diverse city. But for as diverse as San Francisco was... Plenty of people assumed she was Mexican because there wasn't as big a Salvadoran presence there. That changed in D.C. The first time I came here, I was so overwhelmed by how many Salvadorans I just saw. It reminded me of the one time I got to go to El Salvador when I was a kid. There were just so many people who like looked like my family around me. And it was like really comforting in a way I didn't know I could feel. When we asked Natalie about the absence of Salvadoran-only restaurants in D.C., why are pupusas so often paired with Americanized Mexican cuisine? She kind of rejected the basis for our question. Putting a burrito on a menu doesn't mean you're not proud of El Salvador. To say that, like, the authentic experience of, like, Salvadoran cuisine is just to eat pupusas and, like, tamales and stuff with the gallina just, like, is not really accurate because a lot of Latino, like, like first-gen, second-gen kids grew up eating kind of like, you know, whatever is available. To Natalie, the experience of being Salvadoran in America is best reflected in these hybrid Salvamex restaurants. And I think that's because Salvamex restaurants aren't fusion food. They're not being Frankenstein together by a celebrity chef just for kicks. These cuisines have simply been included on the same menus all over the district because of, well, survival. Salvamex restaurateurs aren't the only business owners who've done that. More after the break. Hi, it's Ruth, here to remind you that this podcast is produced by WAMU, a listener-supported organization that depends on member support. If you've been loving the Dish City podcast and want even more fascinating stories about D.C.'s iconic foods, click the donate button at WAMU.org and let them know Dish City sent you. Thanks so much. Let's take a detour for a second. Cooking other people's food, food that's more well-known than your own, is not new in America at all. 
Chef Sang Lunglat had to do just that when she first came to the States from Laos. She learned pretty quickly that not only did American diners not know Lao food, they didn't even know where Laos was. A lot of people asked where I was from, of course, and I had, and I would say I'm from Laos. And a lot of people didn't understand where's Laos. So it's kind of like for me, like when I say Thai, I'm from Thailand. And people just say, oh, I know where Thailand. Sang grew up cooking for her family and loved working in a kitchen. So in the early 2000s, she started looking into buying a restaurant. She knew that American diners were far more familiar with Thai food than Lao food. But she also knew the Thai food Americans ordered had roots in Lao cuisine. When I had some of the dishes, it's, it's Lao food. And, um, and it was under a Thai menu that a lot of Lao food has been misrepresented. In 2010, she bought Bangkok Golden, a Thai restaurant in Falls Church. And then slowly, she started sneaking in Lao dishes to interested customers. When I first started, it wasn't any menu at all. It was just, you know, educated my, um, my team member to, when the guests come in, tell them a little story, you know, about, oh, we are Thai restaurants, but we also have secret Lao menu. So that's how we started. And we just verbally tell our guests that, you know, we have certain dishes and explain to them what the dishes were. And um, we slowly, it just become like word of mouth. And when people come, they, we, they ask for Lao menus. The Lao food was a hit. Bangkok Golden was rebranded as a new restaurant, Padek, which embraces its Lao side instead of hiding it under a secret menu. Now, Sang owns three other Lao restaurants in the D.C. area, and she's become an ambassador for her food and a mentor for chefs who've come from countries whose cuisines are less well-known in America. Sang really had to take the long route in order to eventually cook Lao food. Do immigrant chefs today still have to do that? You don't need to do that. At this point in time, I don't think you need to do that. It kind of sounds like she's made it. She can cook what she wants, not what Americans are used to. Yeah, but even though Chef Sang is a huge advocate for Lao food, it doesn't mean that Thai food doesn't have a place on her current menu. So on your menus now for your Lao places, do you have like some Thai dishes that you have just for like thrown in on the side or is it just Lao all the time? I, 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 I do have a few dishes that is Thai that I grew up eating and I loved it so much and I kept it on there. And some of the dishes was inspired by some of the Thai dish that, that I love. So I have this um, curry puff that I love eating. It's, it's a Southeast Asian. So you will see on a lot in Thai menu. So I, I took that from Bangkok Golden to Deep Khao. So it's been on the menu ever since and people still loved it. Despite being a huge champion for Lao food and fighting to have a menu of mostly Lao dishes, I was kind of surprised when I first went to Tip Cow, a restaurant of hers in D.C., and saw that Sang had a separate list of dishes she calls her jungle menu. There's chicken hearts, pig ears, alligator, goat curry, and she says these are for more adventurous eaters. I guess it shows that you can be a huge cheerleader for your country's cuisine, but you still have to kind of like educate or cushion unfamiliar diners if you want them to be repeat customers. Right. I mean, we've talked a lot about this over the course of the season, about what it takes to survive as a restaurant owner in D.C. and what kinds of concessions you might need to make to stay open. Asking Sang to be an all-Lao food, all-the-time advocate is a lot. Besides, if she left that curry puff on the menu because she loves it, I wouldn't want her to stop cooking it.
We were weighing a lot. The uniqueness of the food you grew up with, the joy of cooking what you love, and the pressures of attracting customers and trying to predict what they will like. So we decided to mull it over with Natalie Escobar over, what else, pupusas and tamales at Gloria's Pupuseria. Everyone there was watching the same telenovela. And we're not the types to interrupt, so we pivoted and took our pupusas to go. It's this one, right? Natalie has such a deep affection for Salvamex restaurants. We wanted to know how she squares her passion for Salvamex food with her pride in her Salvadoran heritage. When people think of El Salvador, they don't think of like the cuisine and like somewhere that you would want to go on vacation and like try all the like local cuisines that like people think of like Mexico and Mexico City, especially for better, for worse, like Salvadoran food hasn't like broken into the mainstream because like you don't see travel writers going there and like, like waxing poetic about like the amazing pupusa they had at like a local vendor. Earlier that day, Natalie had shown her coworkers how to eat pupusas with cortito. She took responsibility for educating her peers because for a lot of them, pupusas were a brand new food. It reminded us a lot of the responsibility Chef Sang told us she feels about sharing Lao food. If Natalie didn't show her coworkers how to eat a pupusa, who would? Papusas in El Salvador aren't sexy in a way that, like, Mexico, Mexico City are to Americans. Like, my friends have been there on honeymoons. They, like, have taken cooking classes in Mexico City. But, like, nobody I know has been to El Salvador unless they have relatives there. Celebrating El Salvador's cuisine and culture through an entirely Salvadoran menu seems like a silver bullet, right? If you're saying and you've built Tip Cow, you put Laos on the map for DC diners. So why not do that with Salvadoran food? I want people to understand El Salvador is a place where beautiful things are and like there's a rich culture, like for all of the violence and all of the corruption and all of the really hard stuff that's happened there. Like, I, I want people to, to see it in all of its complexity, and part of that complexity is, like, the food that people love and that I've grown up with. I guess it's, like, part of adding to, like, a country's story. At the end of the day, it's a lot to ask restaurants to change America's perception of a whole country and its culture. Food is an entry point into people's lives, but not a token for understanding everything about their culture or history. By the end of our conversation, we didn't feel all that odd about Salvamex food at all. I love being able to go to a place and know that I could get a taco, I could get a pupusa, I could get sopa de gallina, and it would all be really fucking good. This City is produced by me, Patrick Fort. And me, Ruth Tam. Our editor is Ponzi Rudge. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt, and Ben Privet mixes the show. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor, and Andy McDaniel oversees everything we make here. If you want to talk to us online, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Dish City, and you can find us on email at dishcity at wamu.org. If you want to talk to us in person, we'll be grabbing drinks at bars around the district the Tuesday after each episode drops. On Tuesday, October 15th, we'll be posted up at Reliable Tavern in Petworth from 6 to 8.30. 
If you love Dish City, tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. It'll help listeners like you find our show. The song you're hearing now is called Mexican Chef by Senia Rubinos. Thanks to Emily Guskin for recommending it to us. We'll be back next week with a new episode, so hit that subscribe button. Later. See you next week. Catch you on the flippity flop.